1: Breck, Lips, Sunny, Pecker, and Me, is the new historical novel out by acclaimed author, musician, artist, and teacher William Minor. It has been referred to as, to paraphrase, Kerouac's On the Road with National Lampoon's Chevy Chase at the wheel. It has been labeled Twain-esque. It is, if nothing else, powerfully daring in form and rich in fable while, as in all good comedy, revealing our true natures through reveling in the absurd. William Minor trained as a visual artist and has exhibited his work everywhere from the San Francisco Museum of Art to the Smithsonian Institution. Poetry came next, six books of it in all by now, including his most recent, Some Grand Dust on Chateauyant Press, which was a finalist for the Benjamin Franklin Award. Published author of short fiction, playwright, and prolific jazz commentator, Miner's other publications include Jazz Journeys to Japan, The Heart Within, and Monterey Jazz Festival, 40 Legendary Years. That's the short version. (laughs) William Miner, welcome.
0: Thank you. Good morning.
1: I should say thank you for my welcome to your lovely home here in Pacific Grove.
0: It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: Uh, after the impressive bio, I just want to remember, remind people, go back a few steps, and remind people that we're talking about your new novel, and your first novel, correct? Uh, tra- Trek, Lips, Sunny, Pecker, and Me. Um, and uh, the, that's the cast of characters.
0: Characters. I've had people ask me about you know, Lips, etc. And um, those are the names of the people, which should give you some sense of the tone of the book. <laughs> um, the narrator is never given a name really he's dad to the to the boys and Lips is the wife and Sonny is the oldest uh, one of the teenagers and the other is Pecker which is short for Peckerwood that's his name
1: and there you have it so the book takes place in 1976 and we follow this family on their cross-country trek to Detroit Detroit.
0: Yeah, they live in California and the parents were born and raised in Detroit and their idea, that, um, at that time, people were making all kinds of different kinds of pilgrimages, you know, painting, what, landing strips, red, white, and blue, and, you know, fasting on the side of the Harvey House restaurants and this sort of thing.
1: And now you're talking really, at, at really time. at that time.
0: Yeah, and I got intrigued by that. So the rest of it is is totally imaginary. And because the parents were born in Detroit, they want their teenage sons to see real cars, you know, the big, huge gas guzzlers, the Cadillacs and Buicks and Lincolns before they become extinct. And so that's their concept of a pilgrimage, and they start out to, to go to Detroit to do that.
1: So I, I do find this really, uh, really interesting, because although it was written in 76, and it's about 76, it was written in 76, right? You wrote, wrote it a long that's time a long back?
0: Curious history. I, uh, yeah, I wrote a, a draft in at that time, and took a lot of notes and, and wrote a draft. Okay. And um, I had an agent in New York City, who got very enthused about the book. Um, she made a fortune off Garrison Keillor and not a dime off of me. <laughs> it, it didn't happen. So I put it aside, and then I revised it extensively and entered it in a contest in 1999, which was open to all Northern California writers. And I got first prize for first chapters of a novel. And I thought, here we go, and it still didn't happen. Mm. So I've, I've waited until now, and I and I found a publisher locally. Um, Patricia Hamilton at Park Place Publications who did it so it finally i have it it's in print mm. it's there
1: and the contest you're referring to is the Sacramento Public Library Friends of the Sacramento Public Library
0: exactly yeah okay. yeah
1: yeah well you know it's it is so interesting that um although set then and and written over the last 30 years it, it seems oddly or not oddly timely. I mean, because here we are, while the uh, American car industry bucks and shutters, and the American public seems to be oscillating between the Hummer and the hybrid, um, they're going to Detroit. Yeah,
0: I think, I think in the back you know, it says that maybe these sat- satirical elements are more appropriate to this area than they were even then. And I, and I, th- sorry to say, in a way that that's probably true. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, um Robert Sword, who is of course a Santa Cruz uh poet and and author, called it a Twain style. Is that that's um quite a compliment I, I I think. And um do do was that intentional? Was that what do you have any um thoughts on that?
0: One of the very nice things that happened when I had the agent in New York is um People were responding favorably, even though maybe it was too late, I don't know. But uh, people did make comparisons to Mark Twain. And another person was uh, Peter DeVries, who's one of my favorite writers. Um, I grew up on Mark Twain. I had a grandfather, Dad Gale, on my mom's side. Um, He was an intellectual, and he was confined to a sanitarium for tuberculosis, which they did in those days. And when I was a baby, my mother used to take me out and hold me up, and he would wave to us and throw kisses from the third floor. Um, but he gave her a complete set of Mark Twain's. matter of fact, this is sitting right over there on the shelf, and, and um, Mark Twain's works. So I grew up, and, and I I got those, and I grew up on Mark Twain, and I even have a manuscript, which some people say is probably from a draft of um, Huck Finn. And I I love Mark Twain's, you know, and my father was sort of a throwback on Mark Twain. There were a group of writers, um, let's see, between about 1835 and just up right up to the Civil War in 1861, called the humorous of the Old Southwest. You know, and that was not New Mexico and Arizona. That was Alabama, <laughs> Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas. And my dad grew up in Arkansas um, and came north, as so many people did during the Depression. You know. But when I started to study literature and I found those writers with their very colorful language in this incredible frontier, kind of raw, irreverent <laughs> um, fun, <laughs> Uh, stuff, you know, I realized that I had simply grown up with that all around me, and my dad spoke in metaph. I grew up in a house of metaphors. You know, if someone was very ineffectual, he would say, "Bill, that that man's like a one-legged man in a kicking contest." You know, or if um, let's see, what was the other one? If someone was very crooked devious he said, you know, that fella could crawl up into a corkscrew and sleep with great repose. <laughs> yeah, you know. And the other one I, I realize this is a family show, so I can't say it completely, but if someone was very wealthy, he was rich as I will very rich. <laughs> <laughs> he
1: he was very rich. Blank, blank blank blank.
0: <laughs> Tonight I'll say it, but not on the air. <laughs> Anyhow, it's extremely colourful. I mean, everything and I thought everybody talks in metaphors and similes. And when he said goodbye to you, he'd say, well, keep your foot on the soft pedal, go slow, but don't let the music stop. And he would say, right up to the time he died, when he was about 89, he was saying that, you know. So that's the world I grew up in. and It was the world of Southwest humor, and it was the world of Mark Twain. Mark Twain was directly influenced by the writers from the mm-hmm. old Southwest.
1: Have you seen Hal Holbrook's Mark Twain show?
0: Uh, yeah, I used to teach a class at MPC um, in American humor and comedy. And I, MPC
1: I being the Monterey Peninsula College
0: excuse me yes and uh, I, I played that it was, he's wonderful he's amazing yeah he is Mark Twain yeah.
1: I had the pleasure of, of interviewing him as well and he he's a wonderful man Hal Holbrook yeah well um so introduce us if you will uh to the leader of the pack so to speak this unnamed dad give us a little of the flavor of of who who this family is
0: okay um I'll go back to the you know the writers of the old Southwest. One of the ingredients of that kind of storytelling, there was a sup- supposedly superior creature. I mean, they were written by lawyers and, and um, doctors and legislators and people, but wh- what they were already writing about were the so-called yokels, who were the colorful, the loving goods, you know, which are really the fascinating element in those stories. Um, and the narrator has pretensions. I mean, he's trying to find himself. Um, he's sort of a lost soul, as I see him, This dad. He wants to be a good father. And, he w- and this trip is really important to him, the trek, except in a way it's absurd to go back and see cars that are going to be extinct. You know? And it's a disaster for on another thing. So when they return, they, decided they hear about the, what's called the Jarvis Spindleshank Overland Trail reenactment party. And that was going on, too, at that time. Um, at the Bicentennial, and they decided to join this. But of course, you can't be yourself. You have to be someone who was on the original trek. Well, he is the most un man like human being in the universe. <laughs> and of course, he decides he's found out, discovered Jim Bridger in Cody, Wyoming, and he decides he wants to be a mountain man. You know, and he sets out to do that. So a lot of the story is about these people trying to find themselves and of course they go about it in the wrong way by being somebody there but but they're not you know pecker decides he wants to be a missionary you know and pecker's just sort of a lusty young teenage kid you know with a lot of hormonal activity going on um and lips wants to just be the wife and uh but she you know the narrator says no you have to be somebody else so she becomes a minotauri native american maiden you know Um, so there's a lot of play acting going on and i hope a, a lot of fun you know and eventually well, they are redeemed in a sense, but I won't tell you how. <laughs> they Find themselves, so I like, guess, is the best way to put it.
1: Stories within stories, um, lots of stories within stories, and and including uh, in how the book is uh, uh, constructed. Th- it's constructed with uh, or in the form of letters okay. that the dad uh, is writing o- along this trip. And um, when the book begins, actually, the father. Uh, has passed away, and as it says in the prologue uh, written by his son, Pecker, he choked to death on an herbal almond with natural honey center cough drop, And then uh, Pecker goes on to tell us that these letters, uh, in quotes, were important to him as an account of something he and we lived through. I now offer them up to the world, significant as a long shot, to American history perhaps, or to our culture in general. A record of events that took place in the life of one American family in the year of the American Bicentennial, 1976. The letters
0: were never sent. And um, in the original draft version I had long ago, the book began with the first letter and so you thought these are authentic letters that someone received and then with the prelude now um, you you realize that you know the father's dead and that these letters were not ever sent because pecker has, has all of them and pecker's conclusion is they were really written for the family itself like he was keeping a journal or a log you know and that makes it more meaningful to me he's a very lonely sort of cut off guy you know who does find some fulfillment at the end
1: well, let's hear Let's hear from the book. And uh, you, maybe you can just introduce the passage that you're going to read and then uh, give us a sample.
0: Um, this is on the journey to Detroit. And the father has insisted that they're going to camp out, um, and yet they stay at a motel on the very first night. So the irony is there right from the start. And again, going back to Southwest humor, there's, it's uh, a really zany kind of... The frontier was rough. It was hard. So you get some violence coupled with in that kind of writing, and it's in twain also, you get violence coupled with a, a great deal of humor or a great deal of horseplay, yeah. you know, and that's what I was after. So this is Winnemucca, Nevada, July 2nd, 1976. We planned to camp out on this trip. Now that they're in their teens, Sonny and Pecker have grown wild over weather and the earth. They long to sleep in tents. We're going to do things, at least until we get to Detroit, as they should be done, out in the ground, under the sky, over the fire, ungarnished, rude, crude, good. The last three words for me form a kind of slogan in my head. However, we decided that because Winnemucca is such a horrible place outdoors, we should spend the first night in a motel. We chose the frontier. There's a big sign out front that says just that. The establishment has low rates, cue beds, Heated pool, colored coffee, air-conditioned phones. Or so the sign said. When I pointed these errors out to the manager, he just laughed and charged me a dollar extra for noticing. Beneath the sign, which was blinking on and off, two large plastic deer stood. Each had large, sympathetic eyes. Beside them, there was some kind of free-form sculpture piece, which the manager told me was a gift from his brother-in-law. It resembled the zipper on a pair of trousers. We hadn't been in the place for more than an hour before someone shot and killed one of the plastic deer. I helped the manager, whose name was Frank, bury it behind the pool. He and I became fast friends. While we were working, Frank, when I informed him of the purpose of ours, told me of other bicentennial pilgrimages. He said he'd heard about a man who plans to stop at every Legion post along Interstate 80 and shake hands with a coach of every locally sponsored softball team. He said someone had checked into the motel who was pogo-sticking his way across America. Another was heading south, planning to fast on the site of each former Harvey House restaurant on the Santa Fe Trail. I asked him what he planned to do, and he said, Nothing. Just bury this plastic deer. I also asked Frank if he wasn't disturbed by the act of violence responsible for the deer's death. He looked at me as if he might charge me an extra dollar for noticing. It's just pre-4th of July hijinks, he said. And that's when it dawned on me. We haven't exactly set about our trip at the most propitious moment, have we? I hadn't given a thought to either the date or the crowds. Depressed, I left Frank and went to sit by the pool. I watched young girls get in and out, and I listened to the ice machine. The ice machine seems to be a popular spot here at the Frontier Motel. I listened to it for an hour and noticed that it was visited more than a 100 times by various persons and residents, some more than twice machine is fascinating. It gives off a slow hum, then comes a sudden whir of activity, a lavish clanking, of falling, a gush of cubes being born. I smiled at the recipients of these cubes, watching them fill their buckets while I sat beneath a green light shaped like an avocado. A girl in a nightgown came when it grew dark and sat in the shallow end of the pool. She was holding a baby. The water made her breast peek through the nightgown, wet and soft. I thought of lips back in our room. She and Sonny and Pecker scanning the color TV for which we'd paid an extra dollar, even though there was no reception whatsoever in this town. Before midnight, someone shot and killed the other plastic deer. In the morning, I helped Frank bury the second casualty. He'd also found just before breakfast the body of one of his customers floating in the pool. Who is he, I asked. Was, Frank said. Who was he? Surveyor, he said. He lived here regular. Used to go off and map out the desert. Government job quiet fellow. Never said a word. Always paid his bill on time. I told him never go in the pool after ten. We put him in the hole next to the deer. What did he die of, I asked. Going in the pool after ten, I guess, Frank said. Well, it's awful, I said. Well, Frank, the manager said, who needs a map of the desert anyway? Lips, Sonny, Pecker, and I left Frank in his motel and headed out over Pumpernickel Valley, a dry, cracked flatland spotted with sage.
1: That's, I think that's a great sampling for folks. And
0: that's pretty much the way the trip to Detroit goes. <laughs> <laughs> <was. laughs>
1: well, um, tell me, you know, the, the, the wild zaniness. I, what I want to know is, as you're writing, are you just jumping off as far as you can go? or Or what is your measure of the right nutty detail? How do you know when or if it's time to... Kill the plastic deer, or to send the Cash Valley Cheese Queen and her float off the side of the road, uh, down the mountain. Take us behind the scenes in the process, and I have a feeling we're going back to those, those Southwest writers again.
0: Yeah, um, I don't know if there's a thing that can be known. I, you know, you're a writer, and you know that how much is conscious and how much is not conscious. Um, there was a lot going on at the time of the bicentennial, so I, you know, I read the papers religiously and, and watched the things that were happening. I would say that 80 percent of what's in there, though, is, is stuff I made up. You know, but uh, once I got the spirit of the zane you know, I won't call it misplaced patriotism, but it was a very exaggerated kind of plagiarism of, of patriotism. And of course, the um, the secret of the Southwest writers was this exaggeration. You know, the life in the frontier was so extreme that they, they could get away with that. And that's how the tall tale, you know, was born and, and came about. So there's a lot of tall telling going on and going on in Trek. Um I just had fun with it. And I, I play jazz and I love jazz and I, I think the spirit of improvisation is, is very, very important. I mean you have set pieces, you have chord structures and things you can play off of. But it really is just totally up to you in terms of your imagination is what you can do with all that, you know. So that's pretty much what happened here. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote and I mean the book was probably six hundred pages at one time and you know and then I just I cut back and what seems to be working, what doesn't, you know. And I gave readings of it. And that really helped to see, you know, what people were responding to, what they enjoyed, and what th- I wanted it to be fun. <laughs> that was the primary object. And I, I think in the back it says, you know, I'm not so much making fun of people as having fun with everybody. Um, that kind of humor was the most democratic form that's probably ever existed in America because everybody was fair game. <laughs> you know. yeah.
1: Well, I am here in Pacific Grove uh, at the home of William Minor. I'll just call him Bill. Uh, and we're talking about his new book, Trek, Lips, Sonny, Pecker, and Me. And um, just just to kind of keep going on, on what you've been talking about, um, you know, wrapped into the story and into the humor, I wasn't sure what to call it, but there is this kind of, at times, I'm going to call it an unfavorable critique <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> of, 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 and it's implied. It's implied in the humor, maybe, um, of of what was going on at the time, or of of, of the country, um, and you know. And yet, it's it's clear that a book like this could not have been written by someone who did not, you know, d- had and had a strong dislike for uh, his country or or what was going on. It, it seems like the book I- itself is some sort of. Um, evidence of exactly the opposite you know that, that someone who would take the time to look at, at this and critique this um, really has a, a love there
0: yeah, yeah. well I, I think the love is there and I'll, I'll explain the basis for um, I think again you know like talking about how much is conscious and how much is unconscious when you're writing um, the same thing is true of satire you know if you have to start pointing out satirical elements then you failed you know so my feeling about that is okay they're there. I know they're there, the things I, th- you know. Um, I think one thing that was happening then, and, and, and I think it's even happening more so today, is people just being out for themselves. <laughs> I don't drive. Um, I haven't driven for years, so I walk everywhere, you know. And it's a dangerous enterprise, <laughs> being a pedestrian, a walking pedestrian. And the look, you know, the anger, the haste, <laughs> the frustration, on people's faces and especially with the um, uh, insanity of cell phones now. You know, I've almost been run down twice in the streets of Pacific Grove, you know. But I think that, you know, that it's an era of, you know, uh, everybody is, each person is out for him or her, herself, it seems. There's so much of that going on and I think that's, sad, that's too bad, you know. And that's what the way these people start out in the beginning, of, you know, the story. They each have a sort of agenda and then they, um, and they have to learn how to live together. And I think, in that sense, it's a fam- it's a genuine family story, because they are a family. But they fall apart. Lips has a nervous breakdown. They're going to ship her cod <laughs> when she's cured, you know, to Detroit. Um, there's a fight in Moorcroft that Sonny gets into, and he lights out on his own, you know. And you and they, at one point in the book, you wonder, are these people ever going to get back together, again as a family? And, and I can happily say they that they do. You know.
1: Well, take us a little bit into the the family dynamics and and dysfunction. I mean, would you see these folks really as just a magnified version of any of our families? And uh, obviously, that wouldn't preclude dysfunction.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, the short, I, I
0: I the short. I would. Yeah, I won't say too much about my own family, but <laughs> it was brilliantly dysfunctional. Uh, my sister joked and, and the blurbabot my fine sense of the absurd, which is on the back. And she said, well, I wonder where you got that. <laughs> you know. um, th- the positive positive the wonderful thing about my own family was um, my father was from the r- rural South. You know, and he was as Southern as you can possibly be. And my grandfather on his side um, joined the Confederate Army when he was 14 years of age and was at Gettysburg at 16, loading, loading 20-pound cannonballs. I did a pilgrimage there and, and stood on the ex- exact spot where he stood. Um, and they all came out of Charlottesville, Virginia. And then when the war was over, he went out west, and and then ended up in Arkansas, where my father was born. So that was one. P- and there were authors in that in the family you know, who wrote about the um, about the Civil War. So that was one ingredient. And the other was my mother is complete Yankee, um, New England, Massachusetts, and um, and then upstate New York. And then they came to Detroit. And one of her relatives was the first mayor of the city of Detroit. You know. Um, so there's a long-standing family history, which I'm, I'm working on now, in a book called The Inherited Heart, <laughs> which, which is a memoir. Um, so I feel very much, I'm about as American in that sense. You, know, you can be with all these different elements com- coming together. You know. um, but I think you know, there is such a thing as a sort of misplaced or exaggerated or fake, perhaps, patriotism, which um, I had fun with or tried to have fun with in, in this book.
1: Well, I'm wondering a little bit more about um, your own uh, story and, and who, uh, who traveled along with you on, <laughs> on your road. Uh, th- that 30 years of the making of the book, um, you revealed a little bit. But um, you know any, anything else that you want to, to share? Any, any, any anecdotes that, um, from, from your own life that you want to share that got um, embellished and emblazoned in the story?
0: Well, it goes back more than 30 years, I think. Um probably that you know this novel is the least autobiographical piece of work I've ever I've ever done. Um and yet I um was on the road in 1956. I was an art student at a school called Pratt Institute in Brooklyn and got a little disenchanted not with the school which I loved. It was a very exciting time. Um a lot of closeness between jazz musicians. I was playing music at a place called the 456 club playing piano. Um visual artists, writers, poets and and that going on was very exciting. But I was young and restless, so I took off with a friend named Harry Rich, and we hitchhiked across country. Uh, we went to Denver, we went south to El Paso, we went into Juarez, we climbed a mountain in Mexico and all this kind of stuff. And I'll give you one little anecdote. We were running out of money going through Texas, and this fellow had his arm out the window and gave it, he gave us a ride. And and we, he knew we were running out of money. He said, what you boys going to do? <laughs> and we looked at the rigs, and we said, well, we'll probably go to work on the oil rigs. you know. And he, and he lifted it. He said, oh, I'll on the oil rigs 30 years before the accident. <laughs> he lifted his arm, and it was cut off just below the shoulder. And he told us a story about the pipes swinging by, and he had to grab them with a wrench and missed. And so we kept right on going and got jobs as dishwashers. <laughs> I was at Big Jack's Drive-In on Wilshire Boulevard, and... In Santa Monica, but that was my first. You know, this was the year after Kerouac's on the Road came out, so that was my first cross-country trek. And then with my family, we've we've made several. Could be our relatives. We moved to California, and the relatives were back in Detroit. So literally, in a sense, you know, we were making those treks. So I just accumulated material over the years. I mean, everything I've observed, and then I did a lot of study and reading about the mountain men, Jim Bridger, you know, the frontier you know, what was going on. So there's a, there's a solid historical basis for for much of the book, I hope, I think. <laughs> yeah, And also a personal basis, You know, even though it's not autobiographical. Yeah. But you, you know this as a writer, whatever you can get your hands on <laughs> goes into your writing if you can find a place for it.
1: And even the stuff you don't think is there, exactly. when you look again, there it is. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, I, I'm You've mentioned along the way, you know. Obviously, you're a musician and and an, and a visual artist, and and a, in the introduction, I I went through some of your bio. But um, do you ever have to? I mean, do you have to choose among your passions? How do you focus your time and energies? Do you have to ever have to make hard choices, or is it all, is it all one, one love, one energy?
0: I think if, you know it's comfortable in the sense of people talk about writer's block. Well, I've I've never had that extensively, but have it ever. Shows itself, I can go over and do something else. I can sit down and try to compose something on the piano. Um, there was a time in which I think having multiple interests, you know, before multitasking was looked upon with suspicion. I mean, I actually had a chairperson at one of the schools I taught at say, What is it you really do? And this was at a time when I'd won a prize for Best American Short. You know, I'd been in an anthology of Best American Short Stories. I was playing music professionally. I was doing all these things. And I think what saved me, and I had, yes, I had to make a decision. You know, I would send things to a journal, the writing along with woodcuts, and the writers would say, oh, yeah, we'd like the writing, but, you know, we can't we can't do these prints, you know. Or I would show things to visual artists, and they say, oh, I love the prints, but do I have to read this stuff? <laughs> you know? um, it was tough, and I remember sitting, okay, maybe I need to specialize, and deciding, no, I don't want to. All of this is coming out of my soul. This is me. This is what I am. And I think the thing that's really saved it is um, online, the computer, you know, the web because I d- I have a website and I have an art gallery on there I have a music section I have s- some of my poems I have you know the par- a word about the novel on and I don't think that's looked upon with suspicion so much as it, as it was at one time mm-hmm. I, I used to go to a writers conference at Foothill college and I would introduce myself as the resident schizophrenic because I was doing workshops in prose writing and non nonfiction writing and then poetry and even having art exhibits you know mm-hmm. so I, I'm enjoying whatever the response is now. I think there's more res- respect for that than there may have been at, in the past. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, um, latest place that you have played, latest um, latest person that you admire, that you've met, latest place you've taught. Take us to, uh, take us to one of your busy uh, enterprises here.
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, actually, you're going to be playing this Sunday in um, Capitola at the Cava Wine Bar, and I've been working with a wonderful bass player named Heath Broskin, who's in a group that I have called Something Cool, and we've done shows. The last was the Bossa Nova night at the Carl Cherry Center. You know. um,
1: in Carmel, California?
0: California, right. Yeah, a singer named Julie Capilli, um Skylar Campbell on drums, uh, Heath on bass, I play piano, and for a while we had a brilliant young guitar player who's now down at Northridge, um, Bryce Albert with us. But Heath and I have worked out. um, So I do readings from either prose poems, or in this case, some very short pieces from the novel. And then he plays, he improvises handsomely in in the background. And and it's really fun. And as far as people I've met, I'll do it quickly. Um, I just came back from Writers' Conference in um, Iowa City, University of Iowa, which has a very fine creative writing program. And a guy named Robin, Robin Hemley, who's one of my favorite writers hired us, and there was a guy named Richard Terrell who plays handsome uh, tenor saxophone and soprano saxophone. And we didn't know each other at all. And and two years ago, someone suggested, you two guys should team up. He's a very fine writer who's written a book called Fake Book About Jazz and a a memoir about his year in China teaching. And he said, you two guys should hook up and play at Cash Bar. So that's exactly what we got hired to do. We played in this huge hall with the chandeliers and the Steinway Grand Piano <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there was some of the finest writers from all over the country there and, and it was a, just a thrill for me and, and he's a first-rate musician you know, above my league but it was it was fun to, to work together and people said geez you guys sound great you know so that was a thrill and Richard's a very interesting guy.
1: Well why don't you take us out with um, just another another selection from Trek and uh, we'll get a little bit more of a flavor for this this wild book.
0: <laughs> Somebody called it loopy. I hope that's good. I like that word. <laughs> um, well, this is on the way to Detroit. Um, Lips has a nervous breakdown in Cody because th- things just aren't going well at all. <laughs> and they find her naked in a, uh, in a washing machine. <laughs> and then they promise to send her, to cure her and send her COD to Detroit so the family can come back together again. And then <laughs> in a town called Moorcroft, they're in a store. And uh, Sonny and Pecker make some comments about hicks there, which aren't very favorable. Next thing they know, they have a roaring Irish, good old Irish fight on their hands. And Sonny's fed up, and he says, I'm going, I'm I'm through with this. This trek is ridiculous. You know? So the narrator is left alone with Pecker. But he also drives right past some national monuments that Pecker wanted to see. So Pecker's not very happy with being alone with his father. So the family fall, has fallen apart. Um, but I like this section, so I'll do it. Sundance, Wyoming, July 8th, 1976. I feel empty and alone. Pecker does too, I know, but he's not saying anything about it. Besides, he's angry again. We didn't drive up to the Devil's Tower, another national landsite missed, but spent the night just west of here at a place called Keyhole Lake. We made it by mid-afternoon. I immediately spread a sleeping bag in the ground and then myself. I fell asleep. Becker walked over to the swimming area and tried unsuccessfully to get near some girls. I woke up at dinner time. Just as I commenced cooking, chuck wagon fashion, just behind the car, a fierce windstorm came up. It swept across the lake. Dirt swirled about the hamburgers on the hibachi. When the dirt grew thick as salt and I could barely stand up, I took the grill behind the tent, but that proved an even less satisfactory place. The tent began to billow like crazy, but held. Naturally, unfortunately, we'd set it up on the end of a point. I took the hibachi and dirt cake hamburgers inside. Pecker was huddled in a sleeping bag. It's the end of the world, he said. Hardly. God's punishing us for more Pecker, that wasn't entirely our fault, you know. Well, then he's punishing you for not stopping at the Devil's Tower. (laughs) Outside the tent flap, which was being dashed about, billowing and snapping like a flag, I could hardly see the rocks across the lake. They had fascinated me that afternoon. They looked as if they'd been made of wine corks, strange, cracked, irregularly shaped cliffs. Now they were nearly obscured by debris caught in the furious wind. We ate the hamburgers. Pecker, hungry, has compromised somewhat on his principles. Pecker's a vegetarian, you know, on principles. Dirt crackled in our teeth. I felt badly about the afternoon. Should we have gone up to the Devil's Tower? Driving along Highway 90, that monument, a distant but definite shadow, had appeared first on our right and then on our left. They're moving it around, Pecker said. Do you miss Sonny? Ah, not so much, now that I've got my own toothpaste. In spite of the fact that as far as kids go, Pecker can be an awful creep, I'm growing fond of him. I feel I've never really known him before. Still in his early teens, how has he managed to become so caustic, so cynical, a Diogenes in miniature? I'll have to admit I'm beginning to see the world that way myself, yet it took me years to arrive at such a desperate position. Pecker, it seems, was born there. Um, I'll have to insert one. The family has this game they play where great double bills where they match up movies. You know. Do you enjoy your burger, I asked. Blood and sand, he said, and I give up. True grit. Very good, Pecker. I went outside, braving what seemed a monsoon. I stood at the edge of the spit of land on which we'd pitched the tent. Extending far to both right and left of me, the water looked corrugated. Bracing my shirt, excuse me, bracing my legs, shirt ballooning, I did something I've always wanted to do. I peed right into the windstorm. Sipping myself up the urine stream and left on my cuffs and shoes, I returned to the tent. Pecker was asleep. I sat and stared at the hibachi coals as it grew dark. I couldn't believe that Sonny was gone. I couldn't believe that Lips was gone. Everything has happened so fast, too fast. My sense of time, ordinarily so complacent, has been destroyed. Each day seems to have swept down upon us with a fast, fresh round of disaster. Survival has become paramount, yet there is no way to come to terms to position it. One can't live for the moment because the moment, wholly perishable, doesn't exist. How many years have we been in Wyoming? Just five days. There is then no means by which time can be equated to experience. I must, like Jim Bridger, learn to be my own man, my own clock, eat when I'm hungry, drink when dry, sleep when tuckered, which is just what I did again. First, I set the coals outside the tent, and then, devoid of two cherished loved ones, I dozed off in my lonely vigil beside a teenage son who just then seemed to be the oldest living person in the world. In my dreams, some endless highway unwound before me, a zigzagging band of adhesive tape.
1: Bill Miner, thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure. The book is Trek, Lips, Sunny, Pecker, and Me.